0: Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day, we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor.
0: Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We have our good friend Leland Miller, CEO of the Bay Show, China Beige Book International. He'll give us uh, very informed thoughts on kind of what this means for China. Should How, we, what, should what we get are... some
1: informed thoughts from him? Let's do it. I mean... I, I think that might be better than, yes. than me pretending to know. Right, exactly. I could. I'm happy yeah, exactly. to pretend to right, now. Leland exactly. uh, Miller here uh, in studio with us. What are you looking for today?
2: You know, I, I I don't think that there's a chance of a breakdown. I think that we're uh, you know the the, the deal is uh, is pretty much spelled out. It's a purse agreement not many people are expecting big things on ip or other issues so uh look i think you're you're looking for a a lot of ceos clinking champagne
0: glasses and saying you know we're gonna be friends for the next year all right but it you are you skeptical that this is a material deal or i mean is there anything is there really meat here how are you kind of viewing this the meat is the purchases uh, beyond what the Chinese have
2: provided are, are talking about buying. Uh, no, there really isn't. A, there really isn't a core deal. The Chinese are putting in certain IP. Uh, Measures, some of them they have announced previously, six months ago or longer. Uh, so look, this, this, the reason there's not a bigger deal is that the two sides just decided that they couldn't come to terms with either rolling back a ton of a ton of tariffs in order to get the big IP forced tech stuff, and so they said, look, the best way to do it is to is to go right on it. And, and and just do buys.
1: One of my big questions has been uh, sort of the overlap between, uh, between the WTO agreement, the fact that the US, uh, the UK, uh, or rather the US, the EU, and Japan have all teamed up to try to pressure China uh, to reduce their industrial subsidies at the same time that we're signing this phase one agreement. How are these multilateral and bilateral tracks overlapping or not?
2: Well, I think that the administration realized early—well, it realized recently that it's better to have friends. And so at the beginning, everything was bilateral. We're going to get a bilateral trade deal. We're going to get bilateral agreement from the Chinese to not not to do this or to do that. And they've come around to the idea that it's 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 an easier process if you get the rest of the world on board.
0: Is that true? I mean, so the Trans-Pacific Partnership would, would be the arguably the epitome of a multilateral uh, group negotiating— they're not they're still not supportive of those types of agreements are they not yet but the tpp is very closely associated with obama
2: so yep. if you you know you rename tpp trump pacific partnership 3 years from now then is there a chance they come around to it, it it's I've I've discussed it with administration officials in jest. Uh, who knows? But, right. uh, look, there's a there was a desire by the Trump White House to break from everything Obama. Uh, some things are good. Some things are more controversial. Uh, but TPP was 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 not going to work under Trump. Uh, but a a revised version of it in the future, who knows?
1: So what precipitated this come to Jesus moment for the administration? Multilateralism.
2: Well, I think they wanted to continue to claim that that they're pushing the Chinese on on subsidies. So if you're if it's not part of phase one and you don't have phase two coming about, then why not go with your allies, the WTO, and and get the Europeans and Japanese animated about Chinese subsidies, which they care about as well. So this is this is not really a come to Jesus so much as if they're not getting progress on this now, why not utilize the other tools in in the toolbox to to push China? And this this should have of course done been done by from the beginning, uh, but it, it's it's uh, it's
0: making its way back there. President Trump also mentioned at one point that once this phase one deal is signed, that he, I believe, said would go to China to begin negotiating a phase two. Is there any reason to believe that that will occur and will he have any success? If we have
2: a second Trump term, then yeah, there will be a continuation of, of, of the trade war, trade negotiations then. Uh, there's nothing contemplated right now. Now, the, the one asterisk I would put on that is if the economy— starts to really slide. If stock markets start to tank, they have, they have created this phased uh, sequencing uh, for the ability for, for, for the president simply to jump in and say, I'm going to start negotiating again and we're going to do more tariff pullbacks so or we're going to grant some other concessions or we're going to get more in return. And so it'll allow him, if he finds it politically necessary to do so, to jump back in in 2020. But that's not the, the game plan right now.
1: I still am struggling with this idea that we're bilaterally negotiating, uh, that the U.S. and China are bilaterally negotiating while there's a multilateral push on another level. I'm just wondering, does that mean that phase two is going to be a multilateral phase two, or does that mean that uh, phase two will continue with added pressure uh, from allies and and others?
2: I think think what phase two has always been sold as is we're going to do the big moves next so don't don't hold us to this now, but we're going to do it next time and look anyone who's dealt with the Chinese uh, for for years will realize like like the administration now has they'll realize that the Chinese are very savvy negotiators and they'll string this out and they're not going to give up core things that are important to them without a lot of pain. So I think this is more of a situation where uh, you know the, the White House realized that its administration was uh, divided on on what to go after. The president had different priorities and some of his uh, some of his other principles and. They would go after agricultural purchases first, uh, try to get the trade deficit in order as much as possible, and while they're waiting that out, they'll they'll start to to maybe go back and 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 utilize again these other tools, which involve using Europeans and Japanese and everyone else
0: to try to push back on the Chinese model. I'm not even st- sure I even buy off on the whole uh, agricultural aspect of this phase one. weren't they They were buying agricultural and soybeans and stuff before. Now it's gone a year they haven't been buying. Now they're going to start buying again. I'm not sure what's incremental here. Well, the big question is can they hit any of these targets that are that are quite big
2: that they claim to be able to do over two years. So the promise is that they're not going to just get the number back up to 200 billion that they're going to get another 200 billion on top of that. So if by some miracle of math they're able to do that, then there would be a real dent okay. in the bilateral trade deficit. The problem is is that This is really a one-year trade deal because the administration and the Chinese are both motivated to get through the 2020 election, uh, front load some of those purchases, Keep keep the keep the guns uh, the guns and ammo dry and try to get into uh, 2020 see see where the situation is there but look the, these targets are extremely bold uh, they're they're almost mathematically impossible to hit uh, and the agriculture not being the most difficult to hit and so you're gonna you're you're gonna see a lot of challenging things here and if the Chinese are actually getting close to any of those targets they're gonna really irritate all their other trading partners who they're no longer buying from so the Chinese are trying to thread this needle it's probably not possible but what they want to do is get through this. year first and then they're going to worry about it year two.
1: Lila Miller uh, is the person joining us right now, chief executive officer of China Beige Book International, as we await the signing of this trade deal uh, between the U.S. and China at the White House. Uh, It's been widely anticipated, but no one's actually read, at least in the public, the 86-page document. A lot of questions remain about the details. In particular, any concessions that China gave, uh, aside from making these agricultural purchases, that's been one question raised. Do we know anything about further concessions that China I might have made.
2: No, uh, we don't. And, <laughs> All right.
1: Uh,
2: <laughs> um, look, that, that, th- Here's, here's the difficulty. A lot of the things that have that been talked about in terms of IP have been things that the Chinese have announced domestically over the last several months. Uh, so one of the things that was was recently touted was the fact that, you know, there will be heavier criminal penalties for IP infringers. Okay, but we knew that months ago. So the, what they're doing right now is they're trying to scoop in all the, the developments that have happened in the Chinese economy and Chinese corporate landscape for the last, you know three, six, nine months and say, these are part of the IP changes that the administration is pushing about. Um, we're not going to try to quantify them. We're more worried about the purchases. Uh, but this is more than just purchases. Uh, this is this is us really moving the system. So the you know, the lack of clarity is something it's, it's sort of hard to get around.
0: And Leland, I know in the past, when you've been in our studios talking to us about China, you said to us, it's about enforcement. We have to be able to enforce this. And that's been a challenge in the past. Is there any reason to believe that this agreement will include some provisions for proper enforcement? So, so I have, and, and others, have been very critical of the
2: idea of, of snapback tariffs or some sort of automatic mechanism for the simple fact that nothing's automatic if you've got a president who will be weighing the political ups and downs of throwing tariffs back on. So there's nothing automatic about an enforcement mechanism and that was always oversold. However, this deal in some ways was done very cleverly because the Chinese are very motivated to do the purchases for the first year. If they can get Uh, the the numbers up and the numbers to where President Trump likes it, then after November, sometime in the November to January period, they have been promised behind the scenes that they will get a tariff rollback. So they have to get President Trump elected. They have to honor their commitments. And if they do, then you're gonna see a tariff rollback in the first few months of of, of a Trump uh, second term.
1: Meanwhile, uh, the trade agreement uh, has yet to be seen and we will be getting the document and perhaps parse through it uh, in real time as we get the text of it. There is a question about China's underlying economy, uh, particularly how they've adjusted to the ongoing trade tensions. We got some trade data that was kind of interesting showing how they've shifted some of their, uh, their channels. Um, but also what remains to be seen is supply chains getting truly rejiggered and the impact on China. How much have we seen that already go into effect? How much more are we going to see supply chains move away from that nation?
2: Plenty. Uh, but the question is, you know, in, in what areas? So if you're if you're a tech company and you're trying to figure out how to uh, to to play the U.S. China game, you're going to have to make a decision. It looks it looks like they're going to be cracking down more and more and more as things go by. Uh, you're not going to be able to supply Huawei if you're supplying you know U.S. firms and and, and U.S. government. Um, and this is going to continue from there on the manufacturing side. I think there is also going to be more and more of a concerted effort to separate. Uh, The supply chains, they're going to have even foreign companies developing inside China for the China market, and that's going to be separate from where other firms are supplying the United States or the rest of the world. So, a lot of this supply chain uh, decoupling is happening. Uh, it doesn't mean that decoupling overall has to happen in some sort of scary sense uh, but there's no question things are going in this direction and on the tech side this is going to be the battle that people fight f- you know for the next five 10 15 years
0: Lena while, while we have you here just give us kind of an update on how things are in China broadly speaking from an economic perspective well it's it, it's it's interesting because
2: People are less worried about the Chinese economy right now uh, than they were, say, three months ago or six months ago. Uh, and fair enough, because our fourth quarter data were an improvement on Q3; they were improvement on year from a very, very weak Q4 of last year. Uh, but you know, it's 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 more of a, a temporary stability. I think. Um, we when we talk to firms, they are investing more and they are hiring more. So so the fourth quarter again, beyond even the top line, look better than the the third quarter. But why are they doing this? If you look at new orders, new orders are weaker for the second quarter in a row. You look at cash flow. Cash flow is the weakest we've seen in the entire history of China Beige Book for the fourth quarter of 2019. Now, why are they investing then? Why are they hiring again? Well, are they they just looking at trade war headlines and seeing a truce and investing blindly? That's what we're going to see in early 2020. We're going to see whether this is uh, a refusal of companies to listen to their customers who are ordering do they invest
0: more. more because the government tells them to invest more to make the numbers look good because we're going to Washington negotiating? Historically,
2: the answer is yes, okay. and it's historically with state firms the answer is a double yes. So we're going to see how much of that is is the government saying, look, improve conditions, but you can't do that forever. Uh, you can you can order a temporary tick up, but you know economics are economics. So I think early 2020 will be a a look to the government to see how much slower growth it's willing to accept now that the trade. War is, is going to be temporary out of the headlines. What do we look at now?
1: A lot of people say, well, you know, this all sounds problematic, but there's such a fire hose that the uh, PBOC has to release to the market to sort of prop everything up that it doesn't matter. How long can that be true?
2: Well, the big argument we've had with the consensus over the past year is we think the PBOC and China's credit environment overall are very active right now. Now, the pushback usually is well we don't see all the building we saw in 2016 that is correct we are not seeing a 2016 style stimulus where it's you know build build it and they will come uh this is not heavy infrastructure spending right now our transportation construction indicators sharply weaker commodities are weaker uh so we're not seeing a build out but what we are seeing is tremendous provision of credit to corporates our our borrowing numbers are sky high Our bond sales numbers have gone up six consecutive quarters. We're seeing a resurgence in shadow finance, which has not yet been publicly admitted by Beijing. So the the PBOC has already been very, very active. And, And what is the result? Well, they've got a stable economy now. Things aren't falling, but they're not getting a jolt. So it's a little bit disconcerting that the PBOC is as active as it is right now, and they're not seeing a surge in growth, they're simply Avoiding a much worse outcome.
0: I want to bring in Andy Brown right now. Andy's the editorial director of the New Economy Forum at Bloomberg. and we're waiting the signing of the trade agreement, the Phase One trade agreement between the U.S. and China. What does it mean to you this trade agreement?
3: Uh, less in this trade agreement than meets the eye. This what we've been saying for quite some time. Uh, so the tariffs on most Chinese imports into the United States remain okay. And the concessions that the Chinese side are making have been on the table or they were working on them long before this trade war began, which includes concessions on uh, intellectual property, which includes apparently concessions on currency manipulations. In fact, China hasn't been manipulating its currency now for many years, has been propping it up rather than allowing it to depreciate. Um, And the reason that China has been proceeding with these reforms is not because of pressure from the White House, but because it's good for the Chinese economy.
1: Andy, we heard from the Democratic candidates last night, and they made clear in their discussions about trade, they weren't necessarily going to take a softer line with China. How much is that kind of weighing on the Chinese delegation's minds, Like this idea that, you know, it's not just uh, about waiting it out and waiting till President Trump, if he gets reelected, and then figuring it out from there, that, you know, is picking, you know, the lesser of, of, of evils and, and just to sort of go with it?
3: You know, I think that the Chinese side are about as confused as everybody is over a central contradiction, which is at the heart of U.S. trading policy to China that the White House cannot cannot figure out what it is it wants to get out of this trading relationship. What we're all waiting for, of course, is the phase two deal. Now this phase two deal is about the rolling back of state-owned enterprise privilege and power in the Chinese economy to level the playing field for foreign investors, including U.S. investors. Now to the extent that that succeeds, it will actually open the door for more foreign investment, more U.S. investment in the Chinese economy, which is apparently precisely the opposite of what some in the Trump White House want, which is to bring jobs and bring manufacturing back to the United States with the unstated goal, of course, of economically weakening an economic and security competitor. So both Democrats and Republicans need to really get to grips with this issue. What is it that the U.S. wants out of the trading relationship?
0: Leland, what do you think the Chinese government. Or how do you think the Chinese government is going to portray this Phase One deal? Is it a great victory for China economically, or is it just it's a step along the way and it's not that big a deal?
2: Well, I think at the very beginning, you didn't hear much in the Chinese press about this because they couldn't figure that out, and now that they are convinced that President Trump is serious about having this done, we'll see in a few minutes. Uh, they are they are conveying a sense of victory, but this is just a small step on the road. So, you know, there there are many disagreements. The fact that we came together on this and found compromises is healthy, but let's not pretend that this is the end of the road for the trade war. Uh, they've, they've made sure to, to add that in quite often when discussing this in, in, in the in the Chinese press. So I think that they see this as a, a temporary truce. It, it, it is just a temporary truce, and, uh, and they're waiting for the other shoe to drop 2021.
1: All right. Uh, we're, just to, to reiterate, we are waiting uh, this trade agreement to be signed, and we are speaking currently with Leland Miller, CEO of China Beige Book International, as well as Andy Brown, uh, who uh, runs the New Economy Forum here at Bloomberg for us. And we really appreciate both of your perspectives. One question I have is word coming out about a delay of 10 months before the tariffs get rolled back that the U.S. has put on China. Uh, and this is sort of differ this just differs from what we've heard earlier, where these tariffs would be rolled back as, uh, as China sort of agreed with or sort of complied with certain requirements. Is this a big deal, Andy?
3: I think it is a big deal I, I, I mean you know you've, you've got tariffs on 360 billion dollars of Chinese exports to the US. that's two covers two-thirds of all of the exports so um, you know you, you this hasn't this, this isn't the end of course it's not the end of the trade well this, this represents at best uh, a truce and then you have to look at what the Chinese need to do in order to get these tariffs now they have to comply with this purchase agreement a 200 billion dollars. Which includes something like 80 billion dollars of manufactures from the United States. This is not going to be easy for the, either for the United States to fulfill. Uh, you know, where where is this where is this additional industrial capacity going to come from to supply the Chinese market? In 200 billion dollars, by the way, implies something like a 30 percent increase uh, annual increase in U.S. exports to China over what they were in 2017 before the trade war started. How's that going? To happen
0: so Leland within China itself did you in your data at the China Beige Book, did you see data are you seeing data that the trade war the trade uncertainty has caused Chinese companies to pull back on maybe some of their investment and growth and you know building new plants and so on uh, it's had an effect it's not the reason the Chinese economy is decelerating
2: but it has had an effect uh, what you saw in the the early Early tranches of tariffs uh, was a Chinese uh, counterreaction. You know, they would there would there was a de- devaluation, a depreciation of the currency. There were some backdoor subsidies to basically counteract the effects of the first waves of tariff, uh, and then you saw a, a bit of pain come from the next wave. But I think that the real fear has always been the nightmare scenario, which is putting tariffs probably very high tariffs on all 550 billion plus of Chinese, uh, of Chinese imports and keeping them on there. And that would cause significant pain to the Chinese economy. And that is why this entire trade war, uh, as animated as it's been, uh, has come to the point we are today, which is the phase one signing. The Chinese realized that we're not here to win. We're here to avoid worst case scenarios. And that's what they're doing by settling for a phase one deal that's not great for them. Uh, but it's, it's far from far from terrible.
1: Right now, uh, just in the market, we're seeing record highs for the NASDAQ and the S&P 500. uh, As people look at earnings and see uh, that the companies are still coming in strong as they look to this trade agreement and see tensions easing, meanwhile, uh, basically flat uh, on the treasury curve here. And meanwhile, gold, and this is where I really wanted to go, gold getting another bid up uh, to $1,550 per ounce, and it comes As we have Bridgewater, one of their co-CIOs saying that he expects it to go to $2,000 per ounce, a record high. And this comes as we talk about de-dollarization and we talk about, in particular, China and the central bank buying a lot more gold. And Leland, I'm wondering, how serious is this and how much do we expect this to gain steam as tensions persist between the U.S. and China?
2: Well, the Chinese have been buying... Loads of gold, as have as have others like Russia for, for, for years now. Um, I don't think that that's what's t- what's moving the the gold price right now. I think people have had some visibility on that for years. Um, look, it's it there's you, you've most people have wanted to take their cash and throw it in the market because the market keeps going up and up and up. And if you're doing that, then putting your money in gold is a, is a much uh, you know is a much more depressing uh, investment. But now, as I think you get a little more uncertainty. Um, Gold becomes more interesting, and I think we're going to have to see how the markets markets react this year.
0: Andy, you know this trade negotiation with China has been unlike anything we've seen. The rhetoric is much at a much higher level. Tariffs going on, coming down. Is this the new way to negotiate with China and with other major trade partners, or is this just? The Trump administration way, do you think?
3: No, I think this is very much a new era in global trade. Multilateral trade negotiations, uh, deals, and institutions are collapsing uh, uh, very, very significantly. In the middle of this whole trade war, you had the Trump White House essentially crippling uh, the WTO. It's now all about these big bilateral deals in which large economies um, will have the upper hand over smaller ones. This is managed trade. This isn't. Free Free trade this is managed trade. I mean, 200 billion dollars—a very clear target, broken down into categories: so much gas, so much agricultural production, so much uh, uh, manufactured production. And in fact, they haven't even released a schedule of this because they say that it's going to influence. As it would, of course, it would influence the markets. Um, so you know, this is a this is an an anti-free trade, an anti-free market uh, arrangement that these two countries are putting together.
1: Going forward, I'm wondering, is this, though, a beginning, at least, uh, that that we are going to get some meeting of minds? I mean, is this an encouraging sign to you on some level? I know you're saying it's underwhelming, but on some level that there has been something done. I mean, are we sort of blowing over that a little bit too much?
3: Well, the question is, was it worth it? You know, I mean, all of the disruption that we've seen over the last you know, year or so of, of, uh, of trade tensions. Um, you know, has all that pain been worth the gain that we're going to get out of this trade deal today? I'm skeptical. However, uh, I think what I am relatively positive about is that it has, in a sense, put a flaw underneath the U.S.-China relationship. Um, and I think that is what the Chinese will be celebrating more than anything else. They do not want this, and neither side does, want this relationship to fall off a cliff. This too much at stake these two countries have too much uh, mutual interest
0: so Leland do the Chinese people do you get a sense that the Chinese people support this I guess heightened kind of back and forth between China and the US on traders is, is there a perception within China that it's it's not balanced and maybe the US has taken advantage of us or they're or they're not supporting us what's the feeling within China
2: you know, it's very hard to, to to pinpoint a monolithic feeling coming out of China. I'd say there certainly is, is a sentiment within China that uh, the U.S. is 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 attacking it in certain ways, attacking Huawei, attacking national champions. On the other hand, there's also a very noisy uh, minority that is uh, that is very. Uh, positive about what Trump is doing and saying the only time the Chinese system is going to change in a material way is if it's pushed from the outside. That's the lesson of Chinese history. That's the lesson uh, that, that, that we're taking now. So I, I don't think you have any type of strong uh, sentiment that's just in one direction. But uh, this is certainly something that to the extent that Chinese uh, c- citizens have have optics on what's actually going on, I think they're they're very much of two minds about this.
4: Can we talk
1: about the defaults in China? Mm-hmm. How much should we be worried about the uh, corporate defaults that have been picking up? They're still pretty, pretty small, but this is uncharted territory because it's the first time that China has allowed companies to default in this manner.
2: Right. Well, I think China watchers should be rooting for more defaults. Not that it won't cause some rough times in the short term, but because the only way that they're going to fix the financial system and fix the the, the, the economic model is by allowing risk to be injected in the system. If people think that their financial products can't go bust, if they think that companies can't go bankrupt, if they think that uh, investments can't default, then there's no way you're going to ever have a model that allows for, for a uh, for, for, for a rejiggering of, of what has always been a government backstopped economy that's, that's, that's in, in real problems right now. Uh, the real issue has been that as... The Chinese government has been unwilling to allow companies to go bankrupt. They just keep throwing good money after bad, and that means that you're going to have slower uh, you're going to have slower growth over time because you're constantly putting good money in the economy after bad investments, and that just stagnates the economy and into a zombie economy over time.
1: Our deep, deep thanks to both of you, uh, Leland Miller and Andy Brown. Uh, we really appreciate all of your perspectives here. Uh, Leland Miller is the executive, the head of China Beige Book International. Andy Brown, editorial director of the New Economy Forum at Bloomberg. We are less than an hour away from the signing of an 86-page trade agreement, the phase one deal between the U.S. and China that we have not seen yet, but evidently <laughs> at 1130 when they sign it. It does exist, and evidently they are going to release it, so we will be parsing through that. Uh, it has a lot to do with ag purchases, agricultural purchases, so we are so pleased to say Sal Gilberti joining us now, President, Chief Investment Officer, and Co-Founder of Tucrium Trading uh, in Brattleboro, Vermont. Sal, just give us a sense of what we do know about the agricultural purchase agreement here uh, within this trade pact?
5: That, um, China will be buying ags again from the U.S., and th- that's about it. We don't have many more details, unfortunately. But what we, what we can assume pretty uh, confidently is that China will buy as much agricultural product as they need from the United States. I, whatever number is, is or is not stated in the agreement really doesn't matter. Um, we think that using 2017 as a baseline, that's the last time we, we didn't have trade war implications between the two nations in, in their trade. Um, China bought about 24 billion worth of U.S. agricultural product. If you just take their rate of GDP growth and agricultural usage is probably a little faster, um, that means they need about 27, 28 billion right now. Um, we're here at Two Korean Project, about 31 billion in 2020 that they'll that they'll buy, and they're they're going to immediately come in and buy pork, beef, and soybeans. There's no question because they need those things. Um, how much more they buy of other things is is up for debate, but we do have have some projections for that which we've published.
0: Uh, Sal, I'm looking at your research, and uh, it's just amazing that you're looking at those numbers you ju- just were discussing. We're really talking about soybeans here when we talk about what China uh, imports from the U.S. Is there a sense that across the commodity spectrum uh, that China needs to maybe rebuild or restock their inventory and say so that you could see maybe some unusual surge in demand over the first, you know, 6, 12, 18 months?
5: Yes, absolutely. They, they, they've drawn down their soybean stocks. They've drawn down their soy stocks. Uh, they, they of all kinds, and they've drawn down their corn stocks. They've also, you know, massively drawn down their pork stocks. And so they'll come in and immediately buy soybeans to rebuild. They'll buy some corn to rebuild and freshen up what they had because they had old inventory. They were they were stockpiling for quite a while. Um, they've almost run out of pork, if you will. They're really tight. They're releasing supplies for the holiday coming up a week from Saturday when their New Year starts where they, they have enormous pork usage. They, so they've got to replenish their soybeans. They've got to replenish their pork. They've also – they're supplementing their their meat-based protein with beef. And so they'll, they'll come in and buy beef quite a bit too, as well as poultry. Chicken and eggs um, uh, are, are a, a small part of it. But they've just been uh, freed up to buy chicken feet and the parts that the Chinese use where we just sent their rendering plant. So we think um, soybeans, we think pork, we think beef, we think no question poultry. Those will be the things they come in and buy immediately.
1: How much are we going to expect uh, these increased purchases to, uh, to spike the price here or to increase the price in the U.S.? Well-
5: that's the magic question. I think we can expect a floor. I think, I think there's no doubt that it's reasonable to assume there, there could be a floor in prices. And understand, we've been trading soybeans and corn uh, in particular right near their cost of production anyway. And they, they do trade for quite long periods of time at their cost of production. That's the natural thing they do. And when there's a supply disruption because demand is continually growing, um, you know, you often see pretty, pretty good spikes upward in the price historically. Corn's doubled twice in the past 13 years from Right where it's trading now so you know people are starting to layer in asset allocate we think once they sign and it's confirmed that they'll be buying and they will be buying because they need our agricultural products there's no question that there should be a floor under the price how much it goes up it remains to be seen depends how fast they buy it depends of course on the weather and it depends on on some insight into um, what the Chinese will be doing in their economy including ethanol they are blending ethanol into their fuel and while they've um, they were going to enforce a 10% mandate. They realize their infrastructure is not capable of that. They're not abandoning ethanol in any way, shape, or form. And that's going to put some big uh, demand on corn globally. And remember, this is the seventh year in a row that corn demand globally will break a record. It's the third year in a row that corn demand globally will outpace demand, global production. Uh, this year, soybean demand globally will outpace production. So the prices sitting where they are now, you know, they, you can reasonably assume there's certainly a floor. How high they go, we'll, we'll see. Hey,
0: about. Sal, I have an odd question. Is there enough inventory? Are the American farmers, can they meet the surge in demand? Is there a bunch of inventory in the Midwest and the Farm Belt to get meet this surge in demand?
5: Yes, there is. Um, there's enough inventory, certainly for this year. Um, you know, that's the interesting part about ags. That's why prices, you know, in corn have doubled from these same levels twice in the past 13 years. What happens is year to year, you can replace it. But the one year when you fail, you're using ags. They they grow. You harvest them. There's a big pile. You're using that pile until the following year's harvest. And if the following year has a problem with harvest. That's when the issue comes in. And so that's why ag markets, they always trade kind of at their cost of production, and then they explode higher when you get that blip in production. Because, remember, demand just keeps going on. That's just a steady pattern.
0: Sal Gaberte, thank you so much for joining us. Sal's president and CIO and co-founder of Tuquium Trading Limited, based in Brattleboro, Vermont. Target, the shares are down over 7% this morning. The company posted a rare stumble on holiday sales, came in a weaker than expected. To help us dig into the details, we welcome our good friend, Jen Bartash, a senior U.S. retail, staples, and restaurant analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from BI's headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. So, Jen, kind of a rare stumble for Target. I I seem to be calling quarter after quarter some pretty solid top-line numbers. What happened?
4: Yeah, good morning. Um, so Target has had a stellar year thus far, um, but really going into holiday, it seems that perhaps there was a little bit of a, a miscalculation with regards to the shorter selling season, um, but they really underperformed in critical categories for holiday, which included toys, electronics, and parts of the home decor part, uh, part of the store. So we've had a bunch of hours to
1: digest the uh, release and some of the possible explanations for it. Has anything become clear in terms of how much this is a target-specific issue and how much this is a widespread likely disappointment for all retailers in the last holiday season?
4: Right. So to put that into context, you know, t- you know, target you know, still posted positive same-store sales growth. It was just below expectations. Some of this seems to be target-specific because uh, in certain categories at Target, they did very well. Apparel was up 5%. Beauty was up 7%. um, And so it seems that there were some miscalculations specific to Target in a couple of those critical areas. But when you look at the broader retail landscape, you know, it's been a really mixed holiday season. And so even though consumer spending has been up, especially online spending, um, different retailers' Have have really had posted mixed results.
0: So, Jen, I know from reading your research over the years, I can't just look at top line, same store sales. I also have to look at promotion activity because that goes right to profit margins. Did What did we learn from Target or maybe some of the other retailers you follow about the promotional activity to drop those holiday sales?
4: Yeah, so, so one of the categories that we track very closely is toys. And we tracked toy prices throughout the holiday season. And Target consistently was more expensive than both Amazon and Walmart. So that may be playing into some of the results in toys that they had. Um, with regards to promotions over Black Friday and, and Cyber Monday, um, Target's promotions were different this year. So last year on Cyber Monday, they gave 15% off on everything on their site. This year, it was sur- very strategic-specific um, Um, discounts. And so even though that may be better for margins overall, it seems that it did have a definite impact on top line sales.
1: Going forward, uh, do we have a sense of Walmart? We know that their shares also fell in sympathy with Target. Are they going to face some of the same issues?
4: Well, you know, w- with regards to specifically toys, um, you know, we think that they may have fared a little bit better just because they were more price competitive, and their out of stocks rose, which implies that they ran through their inventory at a little bit of a faster pace than Target did across the season. Um, across the broader store, um, it's hard to say. Um, they also had a strong holiday last year, um, and so it, it could well be that they did well in certain categories and less well in other categories, much as Target did.
0: Jen, what do we learn from the e-commerce side of Target? I remember, you know, last, you know, four, five, six quarters, really strong e-commerce revenue growth kind of led me to believe that, gee, the Targets and the Walmarts of the world have kind of figured out how to compete against Amazon.
4: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what was interesting about the the revenue growth and and the percentage, it was 19% for for Target over the holiday season, uh, which is not bad. um, But what we're really seeing is that a big portion of that overall growth came from same day fulfillment options. So that's where you order it and either you pick it up at the store, um, deliver it to your car, or you go in the store to pick it up. And that actually is the part that is interesting with regards to competition against Amazon, because even though Amazon has free next day shipping and in some markets free same day shipping, um, it's still very difficult to compete with um, a, a Target or a Walmart who can offer that same service, and you know that you're going to have it in hand by the end of the day.
1: Just real quick here, Jed, earlier uh, you were speaking about the Target experience. What mm-hmm. is the Target experience?
4: Well, when, you know, when, when their their core customers go in and they expect to be delighted, and a lot of the... <laughs> Do they? Uh, in- they do. I mean, you know, when, when you go in, you're, you know, a lot of the Target core customers are into looking for that new piece of fashion, that new accessory, the new beauty product, um, and, and a lot of the uh, investment that Target has made in their stores has really been to reformat the stores to make it easier to, you know, access and to be inspired by the products that they have there, um, and that has really bolstered same-store sales over the last year. Now, they're coming to where they've done a lot of those remodels, so it'll be Be interesting to see going forward whether they're able to sustain that same amount of traffic into their stores uh, that they were able to generate off the heels of those renovations. Jen Vertashis, thank you so much of Bloomberg Intelligence. Paul literally turning my mic off and (laughs) saying,
1: don't do it. Whatever you're gonna say, (laughs) don't do it. And I gotta say, my my only point is the big box stores, the whole design of them was to make it look like you're gonna get a deal not an experience, right? I mean, that was sort of the idea. I understand yep. going in and being excited about getting something that you can get, there, but delighted? I mean, yes, I, I, I guess.
0: That's what the millennials and the Gen Xers want. They want experiences. I understand I, I hear that, that, but that, across that retail.
1: I, I don't disagree with that, <laughs> but I'm just... I think people just want a good deal.
0: Okay. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.